Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. John. Man. It's been two years. Two years, 14 interest rate rises. Felt like it's never going to stop. But it has stopped, hasn't it? Yes. Hooray. Hooray. And is it over? (laughs) Is it over? Are the interest rate rises over? Is it now going to? I know what's going to happen now. First quarter of next year, first cuts. They're just going to keep cutting. It's going to go back down to near zero. House prices are going to go up 30%. Our portfolios are going to go up 30%. Everything's going to be fine. It's going to be marvelous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'd say, I mean... You really believe that? You believe that? (laughs) I don't think think it's going to go back to zero, but um, it is weird. So the Bank of England obviously has held interest rates at five and a quarter percent and is sitting there saying... Oh, yeah, but this might not be it. We're still really worried about inflation. We're still really worried about wage rises. But, of course, the night before the Fed had come along, and everyone had thought that they would do the same thing. Everyone had thought that the Federal Reserve, so the US Central Bank, would say, OK, we're holding interest rates, but don't get too excited because we're still worried about inflation. And instead, what they said was, OK, we're holding interest rates, and actually next year we're probably going to cut by three quarters of a percentage point, so three interest rate cuts. And immediately the market just exploded higher because it's kind of that thing about the uh, the central bank boss adding whiskey to the punch bowl. That's basically what happened. So the Fed's kind of opened the, the floodgates for everyone to get all excited about rate cuts, and the Bank of England is kind of somewhat futilely trying to pretend that it's not going to end up having to follow suit. Um, but why do you think, John, stop, go back, go back. Why do you think the Fed has done this? Because, you know, obviously they look really stupid having been, just like the Bank of England, having been so late to come to trying to deal with inflation. And we've been rather assuming that they would want to look like they'd really knocked it on the head. They'd want to be a bit macho. And so the odds of a policy mistake too far in the rate rising direction is more likely than, than cutting too early. Right, but now suddenly they seem to be backing off from you know the last bit is the hardest. Um, we're going to take it all the way, and you know inflation's never going to get past us again, etc. Yeah, and I've got to be honest with you, I have no idea. Um, this, you know, the the market reaction is a demonstration that it did take people by surprise. That they basically said, "Yeah, no, nah, it's fine. We're done now." Um, and all I can think of is that you know they they genuinely do think that inflation has been overcome and that they're not worried about it coming back um which strikes me as that would be very kind of you know that that'd be quite a silly thing to think well it's very um, 19, it's very 1970s isn't it very 1970s. Yeah, you know, there I... were quite a few cycles in the 1970s when we got to a position like this. Inflation had fallen quite a lot. Central banks went, oh, look, see, aren't we clever? We did that. It's all over. Um, and started muttering about cutting rates, did cut rates. And then, then uh, you know, inflation would turn around and speed up again. 
it just seems like a, a very uh, an interesting take in a geopolitically complicated world when we increasingly understand that that nasty geopolitics lead to inflation where there's lots of moving parts lots of odd stuff happening it just seems bizarrely complacent to me i would definitely describe it as foolhardy given that the market <laughs> had already you know loosened financial conditions because it's not as if you know bond deals were going down and kind of interest um, you know stocks were going up um it's not as if the the fed is pushing back against an overly what it sees as an overly tight market mm -hmm. and the only way that you can justify this i think is by if 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 you know getting trying to get into the head of the policymaker and thinking right well actually i don't think inflation is going to go much higher in fact i think it's going to go lower and that means that real interest rates are going to be higher and so that means that current conditions are restrictive but i mean it, it it's one of those ones where it, i i do find it somewhat hard to explain why they've just decided because it's kind of, it is very much like throwing the market a christmas present um and if it you know if it wasn't for the fact that i i don't think the fed in the states is especially party politicized mm -hmm. um you would have to think with the fact that we're coming up to a 2024 election year would seem it it seems like and it's just it seems like an odd time to be um encouraging markets higher especially because the s&p 500 is already well okay sorry the magnificent seven stocks are already very expensive yeah However, obviously, the market reacts, and we do know that the best time to buy equities is when interest rates are falling. Always. Yeah, and, you know, on that front, UK stocks are still cheap. They're not quite as cheap as they were, uh, you know, kind of three or four months ago, but they're still cheap. Mm -hmm. um, I was looking at the house builders again this morning, and uh, I'm so glad that, that my ethics... <laughs> <laughs> would stop me from buying them anyway because otherwise I'd be kind of like kicking myself because you know they have they've kind of gone up a lot in the last kind of like six months or so um but you know that I can I imagine that for the FTSE 250 particularly there's probably more to come because I suppose the other point here is that everyone's still really gloomy hmm? about the UK economy but next less year. less gloomy you know well gloomy about the UK economy I know but I just got an email through from one of the uh, one of the platforms and they're asking people where they expect to invest next week or when next year and where they intend to invest next year and the UK is is really popular with retail investors at the moment and one in well, four that's people they're sensible. that's because they're sensible well done retail investors one in four expect the FTSE 100 to end 2024 over 8,000 Eight in ten planning to put up their exposure to equities, particularly UK equities, most popular market globally for UK investors. So while our, you know, our, our institutional investors and our pension funds, etc., couldn't be getting out faster, our retail investors are thinking, well, actually, you know, okay, cheap is cheap. That's nice. Yeah, but it, I, mean, I suppose it's also the thing of like Andrew Bailey going on about how it was the worst growth outlook that he's ever seen, and you know, I'm sorry, but I just don't. I don't see this. So next year, the cost of living is not going to be as drastic because real wages are going up. Um, all the people who are terrified of what their mortgage was going to be, say, six months ago, are now going to be refinancing at a lower rate than they expected. It's going to be higher than Still it high. Was. Still high. Yeah, it's but, not as high but, as they expected. Yeah, yeah, it's expectations that matter. The point is people have had time to prepare for all this stuff. 
And a lot of the debt doesn't, the corporate debt doesn't roll over till 2025. So I am struggling to see from a, a kind of attempting to be objective point of view why 2024 should be such a bad year when all of the kind of headwinds that we faced in 2023 are, are, are diminishing, if not turning into tailwinds. Mm. Great optimist that you are. Now, John, what, is that, <laughs> what does that mean? Falling interest rates, particularly in the US, um, economy is not as bad as other people think. Does that mean that, I know we say this all the time, but it's really time to think about the UK investment trust sector and enjoy that double discount? You still think that, don't you? Yeah, aye. And, um, you know, having been early all year, if you like, it's, you know, that's the whole point of being a retail investor. You can be patient. It's about the only advantage you've got over an institutional investor. Um, but yeah, I, I think that investment trust would be a good idea. Um, I was reading actually an interesting piece from Stifle, one of the brokers kind of earlier this week that was suggesting that even like Scottish Mortgage might be a good one because I know that's the, obviously it's been, it was the hot kind of growth one for ages. Um, it's still trading on a discount of about 9%. Um when I look at what ARC is doing in the States, and it's the kind of very growthy one, you can see that it's about to burst higher from, you know, it's year ago high. And I can just see the kind of growth stuff. And, I, you know, anything that's kind of attuned to interest rates kind of spouting higher almost on a knee-jerk basis. So that may be one to look at. But, you know, lots of other stuff is cheap too, including all the value kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, we just get the... Uh, the spade and the hard hat out and go digging. Yeah, and we should remind everybody, by the way, that uh, Arc Arc's bottom was pretty much around when Kathy Woods came on our show, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, we yeah. are. We are um, a signal. We are a signal. <laughs> Not going to say which one. Not going to say which one. We are all sorts of signals. Oh, which reminds me. Which reminds me. Uh, I don't want to, to make this introduction go for too long, but I did a poll on uh, on Twitter asking our readers about bitter, about Bitcoin, gold or cash so that they would have the opportunity to answer in the same way as our guests. And it was hijacked, hijacked by the Bitcoiners. Um, and so it ended up being, I can't remember what the final result was, but uh, nearly 70% Bitcoin and under 30% gold, uh, which I thought was absolutely fascinating because it was a complete lesson in liquidity, right? It is not. <laughs> yes. It is not the case. It is not the case that sixty or seventy percent of the people who follow me on Twitter, who listen to us on this show, would take Bitcoin over gold. But it is the case that if you can create a liquidity rush, uh, you can force something up. <laughs> so I just thought that absolutely brilliant. It's the story of Bitcoin in a Twitter poll. Hate mail to the usual address. Thank you very much. Right now. We are moving into December. This is exciting. Christmas coming. And that means that for the rest of this month, we are going to do something slightly different. We're going to bring you conversations that are slightly off the investment track. Uh, holiday listening that's going to make you think about something other than investment trust. Although, of course, John will continue to think about investment trust and nothing else all the way through until we go back to marketing stuff in January. So this week, with all that in mind about challenging you to think about things in a slightly different way, we've got Pippa Malgram, who's been on the show before, uh, talking about uh, geopolitics and all this kind of thing. She's absolutely fascinating. So listen to her in this one. And then next week, 
We've got a really interesting guest, and we're talking about the future of farming, which again is slightly off topic for us, but very, very interesting and the kind of thing that you'll absolutely want to talk about over Christmas lunch. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Merrin Somerset-Webb. This week, we bring you a conversation with Pippa Malgram, economist, author, and former advisor to U.S. President George W. Bush. Now, as we promised, this is a wide-ranging conversation. We're going to talk about all sorts of things, the conflicts brewing across the, across the globe, uh, some reported on, some not so reported on, about what's going on in space and about her expectations for their next president. Pippa, thank you so much for coming in today. What a delight as ever. <laughs> now, it's been a while since our last conversation. And uh, last time we talked about how uh, it rather looked like World War Three was, was kicking off. And you said people aren't noticing yet, but all the signs are there. There are hot wars, there are cold wars, there are underwater wars, there are space wars. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And it, it's time everyone took notice of that. And people are, they're beginning to notice, aren't they? They are now. But it's amazing how they missed all the signals that this oh. was coming. I mean, it, there have been so many incidents. I guess the issue is there's no overarching narrative. So instead, the media focuses principally on the things they can photograph. Uh, it's the old rule, if it bleeds, it leads. So there has to be a human interest story. So oh. Ukraine, that's an event. But it's seen as a localized war. Now we have Gaza and Israel, and that seems like another localized war. Both produce these incredible photo ops. But in the background, we've had events like um, even before the Russians rolled the tanks into Ukraine, we had this extraordinary incident where someone cut the fastest internet cable in the world, which is up in the Arctic Circle in a part of Norway called Svalbard. And you ask, why is the fastest internet connection in the world in this incredibly obscure place? And the answer is because virtually every major satellite connects to Earth at that spot. And so it was literally an effort to 
eliminate the ability to have missile guidance or, frankly, GPS. Yeah, and that really felt like an act of war, didn't it? Well, and the, the British chief of the Defense Forces, Sir Tony Radican, the next day came out and said, this is an act of war. And then he went completely quiet because everyone in NATO and the United States went, holy moly, we don't want to say we are actually at war directly with Russia. It's a very different thing to be involved in proxy conflicts in third party locations than a direct confrontation. And same with China. And also, how do you prove who cut that cable? Well, exactly. And they're still investigating that whole thing. But since then, there's no question we have had lots of internet cable cuts, particularly the subsea cables, um, all over the world. The, um, what do they call it? The Marseille cable that connects the United States, Europe, and the Middle East. Um, each, and we keep being told these are sort of mistakes by fishermen. Well, like, look at the most recent one, um, the Baltic connector, where the allegation is that it's a Chinese vessel called the New New Polar Bear. And it is apparently it dragged its anchor across it. And the fact that an anchor is missing off the New New Polar Bear is kind of a giveaway. But of course, no one wants to come out and say the Chinese have deliberately done this or, or look at that as a real possibility. But I think that within strategic security circles, everyone understands there's an underwater war going on. And it is about the communications infrastructure of of the superpowers. But it's not only those. It's um, I've also described that we're in, well, a hot war in cold places, meaning space, where we have lots of incidents with satellites, uh, space events. But look, there are no journalists there, and it's mostly classified. So every once in a while, you'll read about the Russians destroy their own satellite. And you're like, well, who cares then? Well, because it creates this massive debris field that is described as razor blades in a washing machine. And that creates a, a space that other countries can't go into. Correct. So it's a denial of access strategy. There are lots of those types of incidents. And, and we're in a proper space race now between especially the United States and China as to who gets the first physical foothold and military base on the moon, which is its own story by itself. But we also see this sort of hot war in cold places in the high north in the Arctic. We're certainly seeing it in the Baltic. Um, and then we're in a cold war in hot places, especially Africa, where we've seen the West facing off with the Wagner Group of Russia. Um, in many locations, the whole Sahel conflict arguably, which is, you know, North Africa across the Sahara. And then in the Pacific, we have what uh, General Milley, the chairman, the outgoing chairman of the Joint Chiefs has said, is an underreported massive military buildup in the Pacific, which is true. And that is very much about establishing footholds on strategic Pacific islands. And it's the US and China, again, jockeying for position. So I don't see how you can look at the map and say we're not in a global conflict. But it it's scares just it's people. hard to see who's on what side and uh, who the goodies are and who are the baddies. Well, and this is an open question, too. This is about superpowers being in conflict over their different objectives. And the world lines up differently behind each of those superpowers and changes their minds. I mean... The events in Gaza and Israel are changing a lot of people's minds. And that may be part of the strategy is to create an incident that actually divides the West. If that's the case, it certainly is doing that. 
But I think this is a this is what they call the gray zone uh, in warfare. It's not the traditional tank meets tank on a battlefield. This is about using information as warfare. It's about cutting off communications capability. It's a whole different kind of what they call hybrid warfare. And I think it's taken amazingly long, especially for the financial markets, to really comprehend the global nature of this phenomena. Mm. And if you look at, um, I just want to go back to hot wars and cold places and, and space, etc. A lot of that is that about getting a foothold on the moon, for example, it's communications, but is it also access to, to minerals? Because we're hearing a lot about mining asteroids, for example. And we're hearing a lot about being able to put solar stations in space and that being, you know, the greatest way for us to get easy, straightforward and something that is rare for renewables, uh, reliable energy. So there's a lot going on in space that is not just about communications. It's about energy, minerals. Yeah. And, and command and control. So yeah, I think people really have a hard time understanding the implications of two new energy technologies. One is space-based solar power, which has been proven by both Caltech with the Jet Propulsion Lab and by Airbus. So it's no longer hypothetical. And put simply, you literally put special mirrors on satellites, catch the sun's rays, convert them into radio waves, safely transmit them to Earth, and now you have unlimited, clean, green electricity in any power grid anywhere at any time. That still doesn't take away our, our problems of storage and transmission. We still have to overcome well those barriers before we could use that. Storage you don't have to worry about as much if you have Because it just this, keeps coming. You just turn the button on, it yeah. goes. Um, the distribution piece, also less relevant because you can just pump it to whichever power grid you want. So the distribution side becomes less of a problem. But don't you have to pump it via a grid? Well, you still need a grid. Yeah. yeah. So what I'm so saying you is you have to get it to a grid. grid. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Nonetheless, this is a such a game changer that the Saudis are backing the British in one of the first prototypes, which will be done over the North Sea, because they can see their hydrocarbons are going to be worth a whole lot less once this goes live. So imagine if you could have access to cheap, unlimited energy. That is such a game changer for any economy on Earth. So whoever gets there first is way ahead of the other. The second one is nuclear fusion. And the thing about nuclear fusion is, yes, we're making advances very quickly, but we still don't have anything operational. We're, we're not that close to a prototype. But what everyone understands is the moon is full of helium-3, and you need helium-3 for the nuclear fusion process. And our expectation is we're not going to the moon to step on it. We're going to the moon to stay and to build and to launch from it. That means you need both space-based solar power and nuclear fusion on the lunar surface. So this is one reason we're in an outright race and there's a genuine geopolitical competition to prevent other superpowers from getting there first. Okay. Hence blowing up your own satellites and that yeah. kind of thing. And, and the great story I love about, because I've always been in robotics, uh, is that only the Americans and the Chinese have satellites with robotic arms. Hmm. And the Chinese have now demonstrated they can go up to a satellite grab it and literally hurl it into outer space, <laughs> which has got the Americans going, holy moly, what do we do if they grab one of ours? Which they easily could. Which they easily could. And this is one of the reasons why the U.S. and everybody else is moving so fast in the direction of these tiny shoebox satellites mm. that are so small, you can't really target them. 
space is so vast, it's very difficult to target them all. But look, when Elon Musk was using Starlink to assist the Ukrainians, the Chinese came out and said, hey, you're a military company. And he said, no, 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 I'm not. And they said, well, yeah, because the Ukrainians are using your satellites to do offensive military operations. He said, no, 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 we're just doing humanitarian. But the Chinese said, well, look, if you keep doing this, then we're going to build our own mega constellation and ours will be armed and we will be able to take out your satellites. Um, and notice, interesting sidebar story, Rwanda has applied for permissions to have the largest satellite network of all. And you're like, Rwanda? Now, that country has emerged as a tech center in Africa, but the real issue is they're working with the Chinese. Uh -huh. So the idea that we're so far ahead in satellite communications tech that nobody can catch up is not correct. Actually, can I interrupt with a little question, sure. ignorant question? You say Rwanda was applied. Who do you apply to? It's the ITU. It's, uh, it's the International Telecommunications Union and the licenses for doing these things in space. But uh, you're right to ask the question, because the more we reach into space, the more clear it will be that there are virtually no rules or rules that anybody will adhere to. Yeah. And we have an increasing number of, of um, well, we have these uh, new space stations in the UK, right? Yes. We've talked before about the one in, in Shetland, which I visited over the yeah. summer, coming along very well, expecting to launch, start launching next totally. year. And they'll be launching exactly what you're talking about, these small shoebox satellites. And mm. suddenly everyone will have a satellite. Uh, everyone will have a satellite. Yeah. Uh, so you're right. And notice that we had a cable cut off of the Shetland Islands between the Shetland and the Faroe Islands. Yeah. And people are like, well, who cares? It's just a bunch of sheep up there. But actually, that Show cable me. is critical <laughs> for <laughs> both those satellite launches and also for the monitoring of Russian vessels. Yes, because there's quite a lot of activity ships, up there. Because, of course, there's a ton of activity at a time when nuclear weapons are being outright threatened. Mm -hmm. uh, Russia's just removing itself from the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. And within hours of the Duma making that decision that they would withdraw, they did a huge simulated nuclear test on all surfaces at once. So we're, this is all hardcore, old-fashioned geopolitics. Mm. And what does it all mean? If we have all these, these simultaneous wars, um, hot, cold, underwater, space, et cetera, all running at the same time, it's a very different geopolitical environment to the one we've been used to, our, uh, our very peaceful or seemingly peaceful world with low interest rates and low inflation and um, expanding geographical cooperation, et cetera. What does what you're talking about mean for our global economy? Well, I think there are lots of implications. Um, I think this is very different from World War I and World War II. And I know it scares people when I've said it's, it is a World War III, but they assume that means the kind of carnage that we had in the previous wars. I don't think this is the case, although we are seeing that on the ground, obviously, in Ukraine and, and Gaza right now. But this is much more a technological confrontation. So a lot of it occurs in ways that, again, the public never sees, isn't really aware of. And what that's doing is spurring all the superpowers to invest much more money in technological advantages, including, for example, what I said about GPS is vulnerable in this war that I'm describing. And so innovations are happening where a new form of GPS is being created that doesn't depend on space. 
I can't tell you lots more about that, but I know that, you know, the big defense innovation arms, they're all doing that. So suddenly we're seeing a merging of defense requirements and technology innovation. And that isn't what we saw before this all started. So that's new. I think as well, the breakdown of the relationship between the superpowers uh, has actually caused supply chains to initially break, but now totally reconfigure and spontaneously emerge in all sorts of new places. So it's true that in the U.S. we are now manufacturing again. After decades and decades of private equity saying we wouldn't touch anything physical with a barge pole, now they're like, we need to be making physical things. And this is why, for example, silicon chip production has really moved from Taiwan to Texas and Arizona. And frankly, the next location for chip production is going to be space because you can make these things. It's a natural clean space. It's actually cheaper because of that. And we have all this new lace lithography that is cheaper, smaller machines that can do much more efficient jobs. So bottom line, we are innovating in the chip space, both with the supply chain and the location. Sounds positive. Well, I'm just saying people adapt, right? And I'm not saying it's great we're having a war. Mm -mm. It's not. But when you have this kind of conflict return to the landscape, then people start to adapt. And those adaptations are where the value is now being created. And by the way, on this point, I think it is really important because, look, I grew up in, you know, mutual assured destruction um, when the Soviets and the Americans were aiming, you know, multiple nuclear weapons at each other all day long, every day. People who are a lot younger, they're like, oh, my God, what the heck is happening? They've never seen anything like this before. Mm -hmm. It's important to remember that normally in history, we are usually having these kinds of conflicts somewhere. Yeah, we've been through an incredibly unusual period. Yeah, we had this strange and wonderful period after the end of, after the demise of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, where everybody was moving in the same direction, which was how do we lift the GDP? Mm. Now we're in conflict again, but honestly, my read is, All of the superpowers are looking at this going, it's just getting too expensive. And I think there's pressure on Xi Jinping to knock off this very bellicose, warlike baiting of the United States. There's pressure on every U.S. president to stop. I mean, both left and right want their presidential candidates to lean in a direction of let's not spend all this money on wars in Ukraine and Israel. Let's focus on issues at home. Um, And even Russia, I mean, I think the support for what President Putin is doing is diminishing every day. And he keeps eliminating all the members of his own inner circle. So eventually there is no inner circle. And I think we're going to end up with an all change of all of the leaders of these superpowers. And when that happens, which may not be so far off, and after all, we're in a presidential race we can talk about whether Biden's going to be the next president, but I don't think he's going to be. Okay, think. but if it's not going to be him, who is it going well, to be? Well, we can get into that. Okay, but we'll get into that. bottom line is, here, here's the punchline of the whole thing. And it sounds so crazy. But when you get into real confrontation between nuclear superpowers, and they are threatening to use nuclear weapons, at the end of the day, everyone loses their nerve. 
No one wants to destroy the earth. They don't want to live in a world that they can't see their loved ones. And they always end up going the complete opposite direction, which is they have a hug. Everybody's like, what? They have a hug. But I'm like, yeah, Google it. Like you see the picture of Brezhnev and Nixon having this huge bear hug. And then the picture of Reagan and Gorbachev, big hug. This is literally the, it's it's what you get to the minute you start reaching for that nuclear button, everybody goes, we just can't do this. And the next thing you you get what I call the bear hug. And I think, I mean, I'm not saying that President Biden and President Putin are going to have a hug. I'm definitely not. But I could easily see their successors doing this. And I, my question to people in the markets is, given all the time and energy you've spent preparing for all of the downside risks, how much time and energy have you given to thinking about what you will do when that bear hug comes? Because that peace dividend is valuable and asset values will rise and innovation will accelerate even faster. So I just spend a tiny bit of time on that possibility especially because that's how it uh, always Casey, ends. All the talk at the moment in markets is about the disappearance of the peace dividend, how yes. expensive that is, the effect that it has on the fiscal situations of pretty much every country globally is spending on defense goes from 1% to 2% of GDP up to 4 to 5% of GDP and the effect, effect that obvious effect that has on our deficits and on inflation over the medium term. And that's where the expectation to a large degree of inflation staying at a higher level, interest rates staying at a higher level comes from was a big part of it. Anyway, so what you're describing sounds inflationary to begin with, and then really very deflationary. Well, if I'm right about what's coming from space, that's massively deflationary. I mean, look at the Psyche mission alone, which just launched NASA's mission to the asteroid called Psyche. And We've already brought back samples from another um, asteroid called Bennu. So this is no longer, again, imaginary or hypothetical. Like we are bringing back the samples, which means asteroid mining can begin. Mm -hmm. So Psyche is said to be worth 700 times the value of the entire world economy annually. And if you were to distribute the value of the assets, the lithium, the cobalt, the gold, iron ore, every human would be a billionaire. Not that you would do that, but imagine what happens to the value. Think of the inflation that would come from everyone being a billionaire. Well, (laughs) but think of the deflation that comes from all these things becoming almost practically practically free. And without having to dig vast holes in the earth. Absolutely. So, you know, so here's the thing, though. I have to say, you've known me a long time. Mm. As a person who does macro strategy, one of the hardest things is when you call something, but you are early. So I started writing about the conditions for what we're seeing now in my book, Signals, in 2016, saying inflation, because of a bunch of choices we've made, inflation will come back and geopolitics will come back. And then it slowly did, and then it suddenly speeded up. Mm -hmm. What I wrote again in October 2021 saying, we're there. We're now in World War III. People just don't see it yet. Okay, now they're seeing it. So I'm just saying I'm already seeing over the edge of the thing and I can see the reconciliation coming because this is just getting too expensive for all these societies. Um, And our capacity for true destruction is so enormous now. It's, It's not like when my dad was an advisor to Kennedy on the Cuban Missile Crisis where you had days and hours right now we're living in a world with uh, hypersonic weapons where you you don't even have 15 minutes so i think everyone will literally 
Just lose their nerve. Back off. Ultimately. Okay. All right, then. Who will be the next president okay. of the U.S.? Who's going to do the <laughs> hugging? Who's it going to be? Oh, okay. I have a way out of the market view at the moment about the presidential race. <laughs> it's so fascinating. So, you know, we're on the six party system in the United States, meaning six times we have had parties that came to an end and then we created new ones. I think we're maybe on the brink of the seventh party system, that the country is so divided and technological change is so vast that actually we need new structures. So the person that I'm watching most closely is Robert F. Kennedy. And everyone goes, what? That's crazy. He's not even in this race. He's an independent. I'm like, watch his following. It is increasing at an extraordinary rate. And... What he's done is, first of all, to go down the middle. So he's a Clinton Democrat. So he says, let's not tax the entrepreneur because they're building the future. A lot of Republicans go, yeah, I like the sound of that. A lot of Democrats go, I like the sound of that. He says, but big corporates are not paying anything. And that's not right. So let's fix that. And again, everyone left and right nods their head. Yeah, we should look at that. Then um, he talks about the corporate capture of the system in politics in America. And interestingly, there is a grassroots feeling in the country about that. So here's the key to all this. Trump now still has a 50% approval rating with his voters, even facing something like 561 years in prison on the current uh, prosecution trajectory. And he had been very favorable about Kennedy, who is a populist on the Democrat side, and he has roughly 25%. So you had 50 and 25, but now we got 75% of the country has already told us they want a populist and they want an outsider. And let's face it, let's look at the past elections. Every single time we love to elect somebody you never heard of three years before. You never heard of Bill Clinton. Nobody thought George W. would win. It was supposed to be his brother, Jeb. Nobody ever heard of Obama. I can tell you, no one thought Trump was going to win. Right? And I wrote he, was, he had a real chance in 2015. People were like, are you insane? And it wasn't a preference. It was just I can see how the forces are moving. Well, today they're like, don't be ridiculous, Robert Kennedy. But I'm telling you, watch this space. And notice Kennedy's already said that he will pardon both Assange and Snowden, who's going to need a presidential pardon? I would say it might be President Trump. And Kennedy will say, look, if we try to incarcerate a, a super popular former president of the United States, we may end up in a real war. A civil war. Like a real a list civil of the war. And yeah. we don't want to tear the country apart. So actually pardoning that president, which only works at the federal level, it doesn't help him at the state level. But nonetheless, the signal that it sends... This kind of conciliation approach, this moderate middle, let's have a cabinet with people on both sides of the aisle, it is resonating. And so I think watch that space because it's changing the whole terms of this election. Okay, so we we're, watch it's going to surprise us what again. What about Vivek Ramaswamy? I don't see radar? it. No, I, and I've just been all over the states. I'm talking to people everywhere. Even the California tech community is not... Not behind. I think for me, he lost me when he said we need to arm every Taiwanese family with handguns. I was like, 
have you ever even been to this place or understood the history? Like, you know, I just, and people are fundamentally not interested in foreign policy in the United States until this Gaza event. And now it's splitting the country. So it's becoming a really tricky issue. I think a lot of politicians are going to try to avoid it for that reason. Okay, well, now we know he's going to be president. Well, that, I'm not that, saying that he'll be president, but I am saying he is going to totally change how, the, how, what's said in this election. Yes, I mean, even if it's not him, he can change the conversation. He can change the conversation. Oh, and by the way, the huge one is he's an environmentalist and the only one with real street cred on that issue. And I, I think Politico is right. They wrote, he's the most trusted white man in black America. And that is true because of the Kennedy legacy and uh, a bunch of other things. But I just think we keep picking the long shot. And so we can't expect this to be a normal one. I have actually one last thing I'll say on this because we're doing a podcast. Every presidency is driven by a technology. So Trump won on Twitter. Obama won on YouTube. Clinton and Bush were still television presidents. This is a podcast presidency. It is being fought on the podcast airwaves where you get three hours, long form, no more hostile interviewer, and people are listening at great length. So if you think that this race is happening at the presidential debates on mainstream media, you are totally going to miss it. It's happening in this other technology space. Making me feel guilty. We've only got 40 minutes. I know. Well, people do go for three or four hours these days. I'm not sure I could listen to anything for three. I could listen to you for three or four hours. I'm not sure I could listen to anybody else. Um, okay, let, let's talk about, if we can, shifting away from, from the president, though it's relevant. Let's talk about AI. I know that you know everything there is well, to know about how know. all the technologies are digging themselves into our lives. But where's the future there? So AI is so fascinating because even the people who are at the cutting edge of this are saying to me, six months and I won't know what's happening. Like it's moving so fast that even the experts can't keep up. Uh, but a few key things. One, we are optimizing, we're using AI to optimize for only two things right now, cost and efficiency. And humans are not very cost effective or efficient. And so we're not optimizing for human connection or things that we don't value in the markets, but actually value for hum have value for human flourishing, like love, beauty, joy. Um, and I think there's an increasing recognition that humanity can't be shoehorned into being more efficient and shouldn't be because our great skill is lateral thinking and uh, creative creative thinking, we're, we're incredibly good at producing novelty. And so the AI community is beginning to clock this. So that's one thing. Second thing is add in robotics on automation, um, which is the field that I've been in. So imagine self-replicating 3D printers, self-assembling and self-replicating 3D printers driven by artificial intelligence that can now build and create on an extraordinary scale, not only here on Earth, but off Earth. And that is very much where the planning is for space, right? All the building on the lunar surface, the construction of the first oxygen grid, the first power grid, the human habitats are all about the application of 3D printing. 
And so this is causing some people who are really expert in this field to make some fascinating comments. So Lord Rees, who's the astronomer royal of Britain, which is, you know, the position that Newton had advising the Queen on astronomy. Um, he's talked about uh, this is an intelligence that's secular that we have created that's now growing of its own accord. And Craig Mundy, who was the head, uh, you know, head chief technology officer at Microsoft for decades, super expert on the subject, he says, look, AI now allows us to create a, an entity, as let's say we put it inside a robotic, but an entity that can learn to the level of a 15-year-old in two weeks not in one subject, but in every subject. So now combine these things. And I think this is where the discussion of, is it sentient? Is it not sentient? It's getting awfully blurry yeah, out there. So I, I think mainly AI is gonna give us great things, right? We can diagnose cancers before they even start to manifest with any symptoms. We can repair fractures, we can manage the traffic, all sorts of things that need doing. But this business of building and creating physicality that has its own set of instructions, which may or may not be in alignment with human flourishing, that's where the discussion is about what the heck do we do? That's there. where it gets a little bit frightening. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so let's um, try and pull all this together and ask what it means for, because this is our core subject here, what it means for markets as a whole and what that might mean for investors. Yes. Well, I think it's so many different things. On the one hand, um, this idea that defense spending is now driving economies is true. And so drone and robotic technology start to be national priorities. So you can think in those terms. You can also begin to understand that with the breaking of supply chains and their recreation locally, I've been calling it glocalization, the relocalization of supply chains. Suddenly you want to be buying manufacturing firms in the West, not just in the East as we were before. Um, I think this is a world where you either believe that technological innovation can create dramatically different outcomes. I believe it can. So I'm really interested in food production becomes much easier. Um, managing water supplies, much easier. I mean, again, this is all against the backdrop as well of an extraordinary advance in computational power. You know, as we move supercomputers, um, which, you know, it, only five years ago, a supercomputer could solve a problem in 10,000 years, and that was considered historic and incredible. And that same problem can now be solved by a supercomputer in 200 seconds. Mm -hmm. So our problem-solving capabilities have exploded so far beyond our imagination. And I guess that, for me, is the main thing. I don't think we can live in a world anymore where we're all armchair investors using the old metrics. This is a world that requires you to use your imagination. So we can't just go out and buy a passive index fund yeah. and sit back. It's not going to work. I just don't the real think stuff it's is happening work. off index. It is. It really is. And there's a question of 
uh, I mean, for retail investors, they don't want to get involved in anything that's too risky, too tricky. But on the other hand, everything now is some small startup doing a risky, tricky thing that then gets acquired and is suddenly part of a Google. And only the private equity crowd are catching that. And private investors and retail investors don't even get access to that mm-hmm. anymore. So is that really where we want to be? Um, anyway, I think imagination is a crucial part of this. And that means getting out in the world and really looking at what's working and what's not working. What are the kids playing with that is going to be tomorrow's big technology? Yeah. The kids are still playing with crypto, aren't they? And they are. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the tokenization of finance. And look, governments are moving further in that direction of um, uh, fractionalizing money and making digital money itself. That is also in motion. And one has to think, what are the implications of that for the economy? Yeah, you're making all the things that British investors traditionally invest in sound. <laughs> you know, our, our older investors coming up to retirement, etc. They're invested in old style listed companies in the UK, energy, consumer staples, etc. Yeah, yeah. Um, collecting dividends. Oh, well, I totally get that. Look, with interest rates where they are, bonds are paying well. Mm. So, you know, everybody's shifted into bonds. This is a huge problem for the tech sector because they have to outperform the bond market. I think a lot of people in tech don't understand this. They're like, so my technology is so amazing. My product is incredible. Um, I'm tempted to write a book called, you know, my product is incredible because they all believe this. But I'm like, babe, you don't outperform holding a 30-year bond. Well, this is interesting, isn't it? Because for the last however many years during the, the tech bubble or the growth bubble, whatever you like to call it, you've been able to say, my technology is incredible and still get money. And now you have to say, my technology is incredible and look at the money I'm going to make for the next 18 months or I'm making already. Otherwise, no one's going to attribute any value to your incredible product. And that's been the most extraordinary change for the technology industry. And even if you do that... Not necessarily a bad way, by the way. I agree. Not a bad way. I totally agree. I think it's all much healthier than it was. But even if you do that, you now have to reinvent or keep pace with the technological innovation in your field permanently. Mm. Permanently. Mm. You can never rest. You can never (laughs) rest, right? So this is Olympics on a whole new level. And... There's actually, there's one other subject that which I wanted to get into with you. And it's, it's, it's the most fascinating, super tricky, bizarre subject I've come across in my entire career. Okay, I'm ready. Are you ready? <laughs> it's ready. literally ready with the edit button, just in case. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's like buckle your seatbelt stuff. But it, it is at the nexus of what this, what we're talking about, which is a level of technological innovation that may blow away everything we know about physics itself. Oh dear. Yeah. So what seems to be happening since the Nobel Prize was awarded last year for quantum physics, um, which gave credibility to this idea that quantum entanglement is real. Um, so it's almost as if our new computational power and our new capacity with sensors to gather information is punching holes in the Einstein standard model of physics. And on the other side is this quantum-based model of physics that is not yet established or explained. And in that space, this is where my attention was drawn by a number of people from my days in government when I worked in the White House who called me up and said, you have to watch what Congress is doing on this whole 
what they're calling anomalous phenomena, non-human intelligence mm-hmm. issue. And I was like, what? Are you kidding? So I started looking at it and I'm like, holy moly, we have Congress holding five years of private hearings on this subject and then one year of public hearings. And now we have not just one, but 10 people coming forward from the highest levels of the intelligence community as whistleblowers Mm. and apparently another 30 behind them. And what they're really talking about is that we have this kind of new technology from new physics. It's all in Pentagon black budget programs that are not visible even to the leaders of the Pentagon itself. And this is one reason why the Pentagon hasn't been able to conduct the audit that Congress requires of them for the last five years. Because the spending remains secret. It remains totally secret, totally compartmentalized. But it appears to be about these kinds of technologies that don't fit our conception of the way of the world physics. works. Yeah. Now, this, of course, attracts, this is all merging with the whole old story about UFOs and UAPs and are mm. there non-human beings and all this stuff that people write off because, of course, that must be crazy. But as Senator Rubio said, if you have the most senior people from the Geospatial Intelligence Agency and the National Reconnaissance Office saying, actually, this is real, then either we have our top people losing their minds or we are at an extraordinary moment in history. And I, at this point, I'm inclined to go with, let's do the, it's an extraordinary moment in history. Let's suspend the disbelief for just long enough to gather the information, and then we can see what we bring science to, to understand it. And I'm seeing some of the world's top scientists working on all of these elements. And I, I just think it's a thing and for what would that people mean to pay attention to. Well... If it does mean that we're going to have new technologies that revolutionize how we do things, that you can't afford not to pay attention. Okay, so all right? that means right now is pay attention. Keep it, an all eye. that means keep is, an eye on is this. keep an eye. It's it's not uh, the inclination will be to just say, oh well, that's nuts. But watch this space. Something important and historic is happening here, and I just think it's worth paying a little attention to on the side. Okay, well, I'm, we'll, we're definitely going to watch that and we'll come back to talk about it again in a year or so. <laughs> okay. um, Pepper, before we finish, I have to ask you something that is a, also a relatively historic question and, and important. And okay. I, I think I know what your answer is oh. going to be, but uh, we'll, we'll find out. We're keeping, we're keeping track of <laughs> okay. people's answers here. If I were to say to you, over the next 10 years, you can have one asset class and one asset class only, <laughs> and you have to choose between the following three things. Okay. And the first one is gold, mm-hmm. and the second one is Bitcoin, Okay, and the third one is a UK-based deposit account. <laughs> the cash cash option. Would you take the cash option, even over a 10-year period? Uh, so even though inflation seems high to people now, mm-hmm. it's, of course, nothing compared to like, you know, when I was a kid growing mm-hmm. up, when mm-hmm. it was 20%. Um, but I think all of the things I've described mean inflation is going to come down. And having cash at your disposal is important so that when these opportunities come, you can enter them. The awful thing is when opportunities come and you're, you're already stuck. 
you're already committed or you your cash is gone for some I just think the optionality of cash but you're not allowed to use it for a decade. Yeah, I know. Just be clear. But most of your listeners won't be able to get in on the technologies I'm describing mm-hmm. for a decade. Okay, so they need to hold the they cash. They need to, to hold. Wait for if it. they were a private equity outfit, yeah, I would say you don't you can't wait 10 years. But if you're the general public, you won't even have the opportunity because these firms won't go public that fast. So in that sense, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a period to study, to work really, really hard so that when you deploy that cash, it will do amazing things as opposed to mediocre things. What if I take cash out of the equation and <laughs> force you to choose between gold and Bitcoin? So I have not been a Bitcoiner directly. I haven't. But I do understand the digitization of money and the tokenization of money. And I think governments, particularly the US, the UK and the EU, they are about to say, we're going to have national central bank currency that's digitized and you can own Bitcoin. You just can't hold it anonymously and you have to declare it for tax. When that announcement comes, the value of Bitcoin, in my opinion, actually will go up and dramatically. Will go up. Will go up because regular people will start to understand that they can be in it. It's no longer, you know, for rogues and renegades. Okay, soon as you properly regulated, it's real money. That's right. So in that sense, I would take that that Bitcoin bet. But that's a very different Bitcoin bet than the Bitcoiners are taking. Mm, mm, Their whole mm. thing is I'm taking it to get out of the reach of government. And I'm like, guys... You know, in electronic world, you really think that what you write on a keyboard can't be tracked? Seriously? You you can't escape. We are in this world. There are sovereigns. You can't get out from underneath that. So I actually think Bitcoin, and here's a funny thing. I think the U.S. is going to end up as the largest sovereign holder of Bitcoin through confiscation. Yes. Literally, (laughs) because every time they arrest somebody, the, the stash is huge. It's like $4 billion. And of course, that's like more than the annual budget of the whole Justice Department. Mm. So do they want it to have a value so they can yeah, use they it? Yeah, they can't really stop trading in it right now. You can can't they? do so anything with it right with, now. Wait with it. But if you make it legal, you will. And then they will be very wealthy themselves. Okay, so there we go. Um, Pivot uses Bitcoin. <laughs> Ish. Ish. Um, and Bitcoin is, yeah, Bitcoin yeah. is beware. Your, your Bitcoin will only be worth something if the thing you don't want to happen happens. That's right. Really interesting. It's fascinating. <laughs> Pippa, thank you so much. Thank you. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. John, what do you think of Pippa? Pippa's great. Yeah, um, great. I mean, obviously, that's not the first time she's been on the show, but she always throws something new into mm-hmm. the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's always early, you know? She's always early. She has been right so often. You know, she's been right on all this geopolitical stuff. She was right on uh, Trump. Uh, she was right on lots of the dynamics around the last the last couple of years or so. And uh, in our conversation, when she talks about watching Robert F. Kennedy, when she said that to us a week or two ago, um, nobody else was saying it. And now you look around and there's lots of chat about Robert F. Kennedy, not necessarily winning, but certainly changing the conversation. And space, you know, she has been talking about these issues in space for a very, very long time now. I remember the first time she talked to me uh, some time ago about the Russians blowing up their own satellites and creating these kind of razor clouds in, in, in space that would prevent anybody else using that space and talking about this as a geographical land grab. Uh, you know, this sounded completely bizarre, but now this is a, a mainstream conversation. And even I don't know if you've read it, but by the way, anybody listening, fantastic Christmas present for all the teens and indeed the adults in your life. Uh, Tim Marshall's new book, The Future of Geography, How Power and Politics and Space Will Change Our World. Lots of this stuff is in there. And, you know, Tim's great, but this is a, you know, he's a, he's a mainstream author. And the stuff that Pippa was saying a couple of years back, and everyone was going, yeah, she's nuts, uh, now is out there in uh, <laughs> no no Pippa nobody said you were nuts nobody said you were nuts just a little out there Pippa just a little out there and now everyone is happily saying you know geography is not about not just about the earth geography is about space everybody's talking about the possibility of maybe being able to beam solar energy down to earth and not having to bother with all those pesky fossil fuels and all those horrible wind turbines and all that stuff we can just beam it right down build a better grip Great, Bob's your uncle. Everybody's talking about space war. Everyone's talking about land grabs. Everybody's talking about getting minerals off the moon. You know, it's an entirely mainstream conversation. And the idea that China, Russia, and America are in some kind of competition to have habitable zones on the moon within the next decade. This is no longer even remotely weird. The only thing that's still a little bit out there is UFOs. Yeah, the, the, this was the bit that I... So I only read this in the transcript... Um, I as far as I could work out. So what she's saying is that it's kind of like the kind of black ops type military secret stuff. Is that it? They're experimenting with quantum computing or whatever, and it's 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 all been behind a paywall for years, and now it's coming out. Is that the idea? I couldn't quite work it out. I think that's basically it. I mean, from what she was saying, and, you know, we'd have to ask Pepper if we wanted more detail on this, but isn't it perfectly normal for um, defence, particularly in the US, to be doing all sorts of stuff that sounds completely bonkers to the ordinary person? Yeah, absolutely. No, that's, I mean, I agree with that. It's just the uh, the sort of fake hint at parallel universes and things like that that got me but why, why, why do you Why do you think they don't? When did you turn into such a pedestrian thinker, John? <laughs> 
<laughs> you yeah, honestly... It's true, I'm getting very, very quoted in my yeah. old age. I mean, you honestly think that, uh, you know, here we are, what's, what's, what's the phrase? A mote of dust suspended on a sunbeam. Here we are in our tiny little universe with all the millions and millions of other universes, etc. And you think it, it, it's, we might be alone? Well, okay, veering, veering off topic, veering off topic, <laughs> veering off topic. The, the other thing I thought was interesting was the, and again, I'd, I'd be curious if any of our readers or sorry, listeners are, uh, know more about this, but the asteroid mining, the one thing that gets me about that is that, yes, it's cool, but how it's so expensive relative to other ways of getting this stuff. And none of this stuff is particularly scarce or not scarce enough yet that you would want to be flying into space to, you know, get it off a, an asteroid or, or even off the moon. Yeah, but, you know, we have satellites with arms that can grab stuff now, right? I mean, that's why people were saying we're going for very small satellites now so that it's less easy for them to be captured by other people's satellites. And if you've got arms, you just grab a little asteroid and bring it <laughs> home. Anyway. Isn't, isn't that going to blow the world up? <laughs> I think I if you, if you pull an asteroid out, isn't, are we not trying to deflect them? Anyway, I don't I, know, no, but, but, really the, cool. one, but really the one cool. thing I would say, you know, you say, oh, mining on the moon, it's so expensive, we can't do that, and we've got loads of, loads of stuff here, and you're right. You know, we talk about rare earth metals, and everybody knows they're not remotely rare. There's loads of them around. But, you know, if you can go up and get them off the south pole of the moon, then you don't have to worry about planning permission. And I would say... <laughs> Maybe we can build affordable housing for Londoners up there as well. <laughs> I would say that getting planning permission to, for example, open a lithium mine in Cornwall be significantly more expensive than inventing and building a mining rocket to go to the south pole of, of the moon and bring it back from there. And, you know, my only experience with planning permission <laughs> is trying to build a garage in the garden. And at this that point, it would be cheaper... About- to park the car on the moon. <laughs> that may seem more about regulation than, uh, than, than anything else. But I said, yeah, and the other thing, Robert Robert F. Kennedy. Look, this is John uh, trying to get, he's trying to get off the subject of space because he's uncomfortable <laughs> with the idea of, of, of UFOs, right? I'm not uncomfortable with the idea of UFOs. Uh, you know, just... Uh, anyway. I've, I've read I'm, too many... I'm interested in the whole thing, and I, I love the way that Pepper talks about it. And, and one of the things I do think she talked about that was really interesting and important for us all to think about a lot is about satellites and how they've become part of our critical infrastructure, you know, the same as, as water or anything like that. So satellites, they provide all of the, um, the the digital infrastructure that we have on Earth, and people forget that that is created by the satellites up above. And that creates huge uh, national geographical vulnerabilities outside our own borders. And that seems to me to be one of the most important takeaways from what Pippa was talking about, that we need to be aware of that and we need to be aware that this is a, what we've got up here is effectively a, a privatized part of infrastructure because most of these satellites are, are private, um, but there is huge national interest in them. And one of the things that, uh, back to Tim Marshall, he talks about it in terms of the East India Company. You know, think about private interests that are so huge that they have national uh, defense and national interest characteristics that means that they can't really be left to be private. So I think there's a lot to watch there. That's the interesting bit, right? Now we can move away from UFOs and you can talk about uh, presidential candidates, which is what you were trying to deflect me onto. 
<laughs> no, well, uh, I, I mean, tell you what, I does... tell you what's going on here. Can I tell you what's going on here, everybody? John <laughs> yes. is from Glasgow, which is one of the UFO spotting places globally. It's Bonnie Brig, which is in the central central belt, right? Bonnie Brig. It's not that far from Glasgow. I bet that as a kid, as a kid, John was out every night drinking Strombo and watching for UFOs. Am I right, John? Why <laughs> is a little sensitive about it now? Well, it may have been Buckfast, and look, that time I was taking up. I'm not going to, you know, I can't tell you about it. I was, uh, I've sworn the, the Official Defence Secrets Act. But other than that, thanks for bringing up my childhood. <laughs> well, always fun. <laughs> um, yeah, so presidential candidates, this guy, Robert F. Kennedy. Yeah, um, this guy, this guy. How? What is the mechanism by which he changes everything? Is it just like being a third candidate who everyone's votes go to or have you been on his website i hate to say it but i haven't okay can i strongly recommend can i strongly recommend so um uh, we declare your independence we will end the forever wars clean up government increase wealth for all and tell americans the truth huh i'd vote for that um yeah. <laughs> You know, he's very clear on, you know, ending corporate cronyism, uh, dealing with a state, uh, state uh, institutions that don't behave democratically, um, coping with the cost of living. Not sure how you do that. Um, he's an environmentalist. He's very keen on honest government, aren't we all? You know, a democratic government, he says, is supposed to be of, by and for the people. But government institutions have betrayed our trust. The intelligence agencies spy on our own people. Government and tech platforms conspire to survey and censor the public. Regulatory agents have been captured by those they are supposed to regulate. Wall Street controls the SEC. Polluters and extractive industries dominate the EPA and the BLM. I don't know what those two agencies are, but other people will. Pharma controls the CDC, NIH and FDA. Big agriculture controls the USDA. Big tech has captured the FTC. No wonder trusting government is at an all-time low. It's time to earn it back. Christ, I'd vote for that. I didn't have to do anything else. I might vote for that. I was, yeah, I mean, he certainly seems to be hitting the right buttons. Um, yeah. And, and uh, you know, when you look at, um, when you look at the options, Trump, Biden, these are unbelievably appalling options. How did the greatest country on earth get to this point? The conversation around every dinner table this Christmas. How did the greatest country on earth get to the point where it's asking people, or looks like it's going to ask people to choose between Trump and Biden? And it looks like it is impossible. It should be impossible for either of these people to become president again. So when we say, you know, if, if, if something is impossible, then what is possible? And something, somebody like Kennedy looks possible, conceivable. No, that's a really good point because you're right. One thing that people have consistently forgotten whenever they go on about surprise election results is that the alternatives in the last kind of like, you know, 10 years have not been very appealing either. So, you know, Boris Johnson versus Jeremy Corbyn, Trump, everyone forgets it was Hillary Clinton on the other side of that, oh, who's a very polarizing figure as well. Yeah. So, that's a really good point, actually. So, Biden, Trump, or an unknown guy who talks a good yeah. game. Or literally anybody else. Yeah. Literally Aye. anybody yeah. else. Um, that makes I mean, a lot of sense. It is. Yeah. I mean, there are a couple of candidates who look like they, they could break through. Um, the mechanism of it is, is difficult. But as Pepper says, well, he may not necessarily win, well, fairly unlikely to win. There is 
something interesting here in the teak could change the conversation. People look at somebody like that and say, actually, hang on, guys like this exist. Why do we have to put up with these decrepits? Actually, the other thing I liked about it is it kind of plays into her whole thing about uh, the uh, Cold Wars being followed by a big hug, which would be nice. That would be... Uh, I thought that was actually the, the, the kind of best bit of her, your conversation with her because it, hopefully she'd be as right about that as she was about you know cold wars and hot places and hot wars and cold places. Um, well, we really don't need any more hot wars, do we? And the truth is that you know pretty much all the big powers are financially stretched at the moment, and this is her point. You know, this is too expensive, and wars, cold or hot, end when people can't afford them anymore. And the U.S. is very financially stretched. We are extremely financially stretched. I wish we had time to talk about Scotland, which appears to be about to go bankrupt. By the way, have you been watching this? It's quite terrible. I've not been watching any political stuff. I've been too central bank absorbed. Mm-hmm. Well, things are so bad here. Literally, the money is gone. It's being spent on ferries that don't work and, you know, pointless foreign politics and uh, giving giving grandstanding amounts of aid all over the place, etc. And now we literally don't have any money left at all. So um, the answer apparently is to put up tax rates on the middle classes, which I think will go really, really badly. We don't have much in the way of middle classes already. Anyway, off topic, off topic, off topic. Bring me back, bring me back. Uh, Wars. Scotland is not Wars. involved. Scotland is not yes. involved in World War Three as much as some of them, I think, would like to be involved in World War Three. Scotland is not involved in World War Three. Um, so yes, it gets too expensive, and when wars get too expensive, they do they do tend to end, and it's very difficult, as Pepper says, to see exactly how that happens. To see the mechanics, all we have is the historical information that when you can't afford it anymore, you tend to stop, and then you hug. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a good point because Russia's skint, China's skint, and we're skint. So yeah, um, that's. That's probably a good bet. I mean, as far as I can see, all this is basically saying that next year will probably be again. Uh, we're, we're we're edging back towards the Roaring Twenties argument. Well, yes, the Roaring Twenties, which we will talk about. Um, we're going to do a roundtable at the beginning of next year on this podcast, and we'll talk about the possibility of the Roaring Twenties then. But I am noticing Eddie Ardini, who we both read. Eddie Ardini research going on and on and on about the Roaring Twenties, and he has he has a pretty good record, and he called this year very well. Um, and if we look back at what Pippa was saying about space and about the technological gains that come with this kind of space race, and if there really is a, a game-changing uh, uh, energy I don't even know how to describe uh, beaming solar energy back to Earth from the sun. I don't know how to describe it. But, you know, some of these things begin to come true. Solar laser, some of these things beginning to, begin to come true. And there are shifts forward in, in healthcare and in uh, digitalization and AI really does make a big difference. All these things that we've been talking about for ages. If next year is the year, which it could be, then the Roaring Twenties come back. And the notebook that I got from Bailey Gifford at a conference a couple of years ago that has Roaring Twenties written on the front, I'll finally be able to use that without being mildly embarrassed. <laughs> Happy days, That's right? the main thing. It is the main thing. It is the main thing. Um, and now I'm thinking. No, I'm just thinking about John and UFOs again. But I'm not going to. I'm not going to tease him. I'm not going to tease him anymore. I'm going to finish up. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to this week's Marion Talks Money. We'll be back next week. Don't forget to leave us a review. It helps people find the show. And of course, you can also tell people in person about the show to help them find the show. This episode was hosted by me, Marion Somerset Webb. It was produced by Sam Asadi. Additional editing by Blake Maple. Special thanks to Pippa Malgram and to John Steffek. And of course, be sure to sign up to John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled. The link is in the show notes and you can learn lots more about John's obsession with investment trusts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.